Welcome to the inaugural episode of Globus, the official podcast of the newly formed SDSN Youth USA Network. My name is Nikita Angarski. And I am Elizabeth. We are the network coordinators of the Youth USA Network and your podcast hosts. We are incredibly fortunate to be joined by Professor Jeffrey Sachs, a world-renowned economics professor, best-selling author, innovative educator, and global leader in sustainable development. Professor Sachs currently works as the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he also directed the Earth Institute from 2002 until 2016. He is president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and a commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development. He has been advisor to three United Nations Secretaries General and currently serves as an SDG advocate under Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He spent over 20 years as a professor at Harvard University, where he received his BA, MA, and PhD degrees, has authored numerous best-selling books, and was twice named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders, and was ranked by The Economist among top three influential living economists. In this episode, we discussed climate change, where leadership needs to be, and what sustainable development is. With regard to your your introduction of both the PhD uh, and the major at uh, at Columbia College in sustainable development, brings us kind of to the question of why should schools sort of invest in programs on sustainable development within economic curriculums in general when we prioritize sustainable development in our education systems? A wider question on should we even focus on schools as loci of change? Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've raised a lot of questions uh, about. Uh, the substance of sustainable development and how to infuse it in society. From a substantive point of view, sustainable development for me, and I think for the uh, sustainable development goals of the United Nations means uh, making our societies more fair and more environmentally sustainable. Uh, So it means uh, what's sometimes called the triple bottom line, economic progress, that is accompanied by more social justice, reduced inequalities, and environmental sustainability. This is a crucial global agenda. Uh, And the recent report of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which just came out and shows that we are in a colossal climate crisis that is rapidly getting worse, underscores how central this agenda is. In fact, there have been a series of reports uh, all spring and summer showing the extent of the global crisis and some of the key solutions. Uh, There is also a recent report showing that 3 billion people on the planet cannot afford a healthy diet right now. So we have a food and hunger and undernourishment crisis. We have a climate crisis. We have an inequality crisis, which has become more severe. Of course, we have the pandemic and all of the difficulties of getting a coherent global response to the pandemic. So sustainable development means a holistic approach to all of these challenges. And That's why the members of the United Nations, the 193 countries adopted 
the 17 Sustainable Development Goals in September 2015 and the Paris Climate Agreement in December 2015. But it's one thing to announce some goals and it's another thing to achieve them. And uh, we're a long way off, partly because of politics, partly because of the complexity of these challenges, uh, partly because we need new ways to govern. We need new institutions for the economy. Uh, We need new approaches to politics. Uh, We need new approaches to technology. The idea of sustainable development as a field of study is to study the interdependent physical, engineered, political, economic, and social systems uh, in which we live so that we understand those interconnections from physical earth through the engineered environment, such as how our energy system or our food production system works, uh, through politics and economics, which shape uh, how resources are uh, allocated and used in the world. That's a different kind of understanding from what you would get in any single discipline. If you're an earth system scientist, for example, a climatologist, you'll understand uh, the climate system and that humans are affecting it. If you're an engineer, you'll know a lot about uh, what kind of power system could operate with the uh, less or zero carbon emissions. Uh, If you're a political scientist, maybe you can explain what the vested interests are that are blocking action or uh, how public uh, sentiment uh, translates into action or inaction. If you're an economist, you might ask, what is the low-cost approach to climate safety? But each of these uh, would just be a facet of a more complex reality. Uh, Economists can't address the question without a good understanding from the engineers. The engineers can't uh, know the specs for what we need unless the climatologists uh, give uh, closer guidance Getting all of this done requires uh, some understanding of human behavior, uh, psychology, uh, uh, sociology, uh, social psychology, uh, and it requires uh, a good understanding of politics, uh, both uh, at a national level, for example, and also geopolitics. Oh, so that's a lot. And the idea of sustainable development as a field is a, a field that studies a system of systems uh, to uh, understand how we can move the world society, world economy, uh, world resource and energy uses to uh, sustainability and to uh, social fairness. It's a kind of normative field because it takes as its goal, a certain direction. It's not just standing back as a spectator, but it's really asking a question in a similar way to public health, for example, which asks the question, how can we achieve population health? Not just studying diseases, but saying, what can we do about them? Uh, Sustainable development asks, uh, how can we actually uh, shape a future that is uh, more socially just and environmentally sustainable. We need that field because the individual disciplines, which are the components, the pillars, 
by themselves don't add up to the holistic approach. And we need people that understand the interconnections. And that's the idea of sustainable development as a field. Just a final point, <laughs> the importance of understanding that integrated or holistic approach is so strong that when the governments adopted the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, they adopted a specific target called Target 4.7. In other words, Target 7 of SDG 4. SDG 4 is uh, universal <coughs> access to education. Uh, and Target 7 says uh, that everybody should learn sustainable development. Uh, and so it's already identified by governments as a kind of need but getting that it, excuse me, into the curriculum uh, at the primary level, at the secondary level, at the university level is a real challenge. It's a real puzzle, an important one, uh, but it's a really uh, part of the pedagogical agenda that we have today. Absolutely. I think you've raised a number of really fascinating points. Um, and I think what really stands out to me is, of course, this need for a holistic approach, a holistic education. And I think that this sort of holistic approach is certainly becoming more evident in fields, um, not just in sustainable development, but, for example, behavioral economics, right? Like, that's something that's fairly recent, but the combination of which um, in neuroaesthetics, right, is you know, also a very highly combinatory field. Um, and I think that, so what is interesting is that this sort of globalization um, that is steadily occurring in fields and disciplines, um, and I think that, of course, we have sort of um, achieved a globalization of climate awareness, right? We are all aware of the pressing need um, of climate change, of course, but maybe we lack sort of uh, the knowledge that, you know, to act towards that. So what in your mind is sort of... Um, the difference, right, between a climate awareness but uh, and a climate globalization and a climate action. And I think that within that question is sort of baked this idea of universality, right, that the SDGs are quote-unquote universal, um, and that may or may not read to some as a political agenda. And uh, your previous work actually on clinical economics, I think, is appropriate here, uh, and I would love to hear some more um, some more of your thoughts on that and how you'd integrate that. Climate awareness is nearly universal, except it uh, has not quite reached a couple of dingbat governors uh, in the United States, uh, like uh, Greg Abbott of Texas uh, or uh, Ron uh, uh, Santis of uh, DeSantis of Florida, who... Uh, uh, I don't know whether they're willfully ignorant, corrupt, uh, or what it is, but uh, they display part of the problem, which is that we have some political leaders who are so far off the mark, either just intellectually completely ignorant or don't give a damn, uh, or are corrupt because they're representing fossil fuel interests. But I, I do think it's important to say that we're not quite where we need to be, that it's just sleeves rolled up, problem solving. We're still in politics. Uh, we had a psychopathic president of the United States. Uh, the, uh, Trump, for four years, did everything he could to promote fossil fuels and to suppress the climate science. And it is 
really a, a question. Is, is it a question for uh, political scientists or psychologists or what to understand uh, Trump's motivation? But it was a disaster for the United States and for the world, and it's pushed us closer and closer to tipping points that are extraordinarily dangerous. And already in 2021, we're living through crises everywhere, mega fires, mega heat waves, uh, uh, a storm season in uh, the Atlantic uh, that started early, already has uh, uh, an enormous number of named storms, very serious uh, so many fires raging around the world. All of this is to say not only is the crisis uh, extreme, but uh, politicians uh, in some places, especially where there's fossil fuels, uh, have been resistant to action. Now, my tactic and strategy in all of this has been to emphasize not only the dangers, but the what to do's. So it's been my favorite uh, uh, activity in the climate challenge to define pathways. What do we actually do to get out of this mess? Because identifying a crisis without giving a solution can lead to despair. It can lead to cynicism. Uh, it can lead to incredible frustration. And the key is the what to do's. I was very happy this year uh, in the spring that the International Energy Agency issued a report called Net Zero uh, uh, to 2050, which is a, a major what-to-do report for the world showing how the energy system worldwide can be decarbonized. I had urged the IEA to make this study for many years. I think uh, the successful reception of the study demonstrates uh, how much it was needed to give a framework that governments anywhere, business anywhere, civil society anywhere can point to and say, yes, you see, it's really possible to decarbonize by 2050. So in order to get to where we need to go, we need a theory of change. Uh, we need a strategy for change. And there are many parts to that. Uh, part of it is the what to do's. I think that this is where academia can play an important role, where students can play an important role, where researchers can play an important role. Part of it is the politics and understanding the politics uh, accurately. Uh, in the United States, for example, to understand the politics, we really have to understand the role of big corporate money in the U.S. political system because we have, a, in my view, a very corrupt political system uh, where candidates uh, depend on large wealthy donors, corporate and individual, to give them the funds to run their expensive campaigns. And in 2020, the spending was around $14 billion. And most of that came from big money, and the big money comes uh, with aims attached to it, which is uh, I give you money, you vote for my interest. And traditionally, the fossil fuel industry has been one of the biggest lobbyists and one of the biggest campaign contributors. And the Republican Party is basically enthralled to uh, the uh, fossil fuel industry, coal, oil, and gas. 
So this is part of our political struggle. It's interesting, as we speak, the Democrats have just tabled a very important piece of legislation called the, the uh, budget resolution, uh, which is uh, part of a complicated uh, procedural dance to get to what will be called a reconciliation bill, uh, in which uh, possibly on a party line vote, the Democrats, who are not in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry, will vote major public outlays for a power grid, for green energy, for moving to electric vehicles, for other climate-related actions over what will likely be party-line opposition by the Republican Party. So we're really in the midst uh, in the United States uh, of this uh, political battle right now, which I think is a battle of vested interests, not a battle of ideas, not a battle of public interest, but a battle of vested interests. We're also at a moment globally where politics and diplomacy matter a lot because <clears throat> with the world basically at the last moment to still have a chance to stay below 1.5 degrees C warming and to do that only by moving decisively to decarbonization right now, we need an agreement worldwide that says net zero by 2050. And the whole world, all the governments, the 193 UN member governments will meet at COP26 in Glasgow. That is the UN Framework Convention Global Climate Conference uh, that will start at the beginning of November. This is an essential moment when the world has to say, okay, we read the studies, we read the IPCC, we read the IEA, we know we're at the end of the story if we're going to have a chance of even relative climate safety. We can't have real climate safety anymore. It's too late. But to avoid disaster, we need to move decisively. And so this is a matter of great geopolitics at this moment as well. Again, you see basically the fossil fuel countries lined up mostly on one side <laughs> and the world that doesn't own the fossil fuels saying, stop already, we need to move. And that's the, the battle that's underway right now. By November, it's possible we'll actually have at least a political framing agreement that we are going to get to net zero by mid-century. Thank you so much for that uh, nugget of positivity. Um, it's, it's kind of sometimes it's a little bit stressful to, to you know, keep reading the news and, um, and keep digesting this information without sort of a, a, some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Well, it's always the question, the what to do, the what to do, because uh, it, this is not a spectator sport. That's the point. <laughs> right. Um, and sort of uh, related to kind of a question of geopolitics. And as we know, like for better or worse, the U.S. is one of the most influential powers in the world. So it does have a tremendous capacity to actually be the catalyst in being uh, a shift towards a more sustainable economic model. If you, if you could speak on this, uh, what are the challenges that we as a nation face in transforming sort of our culture and thinking? And to what extent can the U.S. benefit from being more collaborative and open to influence from more sustainably-minded countries? without um, spreading too much of its kind of political interests. The U.S. is not one society. It's uh, two, at least, at a minimum. Uh, we are a divided society. 
I, I think everyone's noticed uh, everything seems to come down to uh, uh, 50-50 division right now, a huge amount of shouting across a cultural divide. Uh, and uh, this is a country uh, that had a civil war, after all, to end slavery. And in some ways, the civil war never ended. Uh, it, uh, it, it continued in other ways, uh, thankfully not uh, on a bloody battlefield, but still uh, a pretty bitter cultural divide. We have a north-south divide. We have a coasts versus interior divide. We have, uh, uh, I would say, uh, different uh, uh, religious opinions to some extent because uh, evangelical Christians in the United States uh, tend to oppose climate action. It's not in the Bible after all, uh, and they're Bible literalists, uh, and uh, they can't uh, some can't imagine uh, anyway on an earth that's only 5,000 years old, according to the Bible, how you could uh, be uh, uh, facing this kind of uh, climate crisis where the scientists are comparing our climate to what happened millions of years ago and so on. So we, we really have a lot of divisions uh, and we've been trapped in our politics because our politics give a lot of veto power to uh, vested interests. Uh, we have a filibuster in the Senate, uh, which means that uh, it just takes 40 votes on most issues to stop Senate action, which means you can't pass legislation. But it's even worse than that because the Senate itself is not uh, apportioned by population. Small states are disproportionately represented and so the Senate is itself not representative of the overall public. And then a small part of the Senate can block action by most. So when you look at uh, U.S. public opinion, it's typical that 65, 70 percent say, hey, we're in an emergency, move. And yet getting something through the Senate uh, has proved to be extraordinarily difficult. So. All of this means uh, I wince whenever uh, I hear U.S. leadership. Are you kidding? Uh, I've been at this for a long time, and the U.S. has been one of the main laggards in the world. Uh, I'm sorry to say also in the course of my career, which is now 41 years on uh, the faculty, first at Harvard and now at Columbia, when I started in uh, teaching in 1980, for me, the Marshall Plan was still kind of recent memory. Uh, that was uh, the generosity of the United States in 1947 to help rebuild Europe. And I took it for granted. Oh, we're a generous country and we're going to help uh, the rest of the world. Unfortunately, for 41 years, uh, I've uh, seen often something very, very different. Uh, the U.S. going to war in completely stupid uh, often completely false premises, the U.S. dragging its feet on climate, the U.S. undermining other governments, the U.S. having a very militarized or antagonistic view to other countries. Currently, it's about China, uh, and it seems to be about China every moment. 
uh, almost an obsession, or I call it a neurosis, uh, of American leadership because they seem not to be able to accept the fact that, hey, China wants to have development too, <laughs> not just us, and nothing wrong with that in my view. <laughs> so uh, I am not really of the school of U.S. leadership. I want U.S. normalcy. I want us to not have uh, our internal civil war over these concepts, but to behave, to uh, agree on the need for climate action, to agree on a balanced approach of government and markets. Every day I read propaganda in the Wall Street Journal that says governments are bad, markets are good. Well, this is a kind of uh, primitivism uh, of ideology uh, by, by the way, a very primitive editorial board. It's uh, utterly uh, ignorant, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, it's part of our ideological divide as well, that we have a strong libertarian streak uh, in the United States. Again, not a majority, but enough of a minority to create havoc, uh, which says, don't wear face masks, don't get a vaccine, it's my choice, I can do what I want, and I don't have to limit fossil fuel emissions. This is a free country in a free world. And that kind of libertarianism is also extremely naive at all levels, at practical, at ethical levels, uh, as if there's no responsibility to others. It's a kind of uh, kindergartner's uh, ethics, although maybe unfair to kindergartners, uh, who know better because they're taught be nice to the uh, other child in the sandbox with you. But uh, American leaders are often like DeSantis and Abbott, just as crude as can be uh, in uh, proclaiming their freedom to make havoc uh, or to let their rich constituents make havoc in the world. So all of this is to say, I'm hoping for the U.S. to be nice, to be normal, to be decent. I'm not holding my breath for the U.S. to lead. I'm uh, hoping for the U.S. to cooperate. I should add, by the way, that we went from an utterly psychopathic president in Trump to a very nice man and decent man as President Joe Biden. So I like our president a lot. I've known him for a long time. I think that the uh, aims of uh, this administration are good. Our Treasury Secretary, in my view, is <laughs> the finest Treasury Secretary we've had in American history, uh, with the possible competition of uh, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, but uh, she was my teacher, Janet Yellen, uh, uh, a long time ago when I was studying macroeconomics, and she's absolutely wonderful. So we have a team that can be decent I don't want them to lead uh, in the sense of proclaiming that the U.S. Uh, is the lead and others should follow because we're stumbling along. But I surely would like us to cooperate uh, with those who are in the forefront of decarbonization. And I know that that is President Biden's in intention. Yes, thank you. You, again, raise very interesting points. Um, and. Thank you very much for being so open about your opinions on these subjects. It appears almost circular in a way in that the general public, just to zoom in for a bit um, and to speak about the U.S. on a more granular level, that it's the general public that is often 
the the force that is driving positive change or or negative change for that fact um, as you've mentioned but the general public is also not perhaps that intelligent either and so i think that it sort of leads us to the question of when we say we want to either as an individual or as a community we want to to do something i think that often right we lack the materials and the tools we need in order to to do that right the the to-do list is not accessible to a person or a community we often hear this right that it's the younger generations that can catalyze change that it's the public it's the force for good that we need this we need the sort of collectivist attitude the solidarity at least within uh you know a community i think uh, we should uh, keep in mind two things uh, one is uh and a public uh, opinion and uh, public support or opposition to policies, and then uh, the uh, machinery of politics uh, as it translates that public opinion and other factors like campaign funding into actual decision-making. Probably our biggest problem in the United States <laughs> is not the opposition of the public to effective action, but as I've been emphasizing, the vested interests, the money in politics, uh, the uh, narrow-minded uh, uh, interests, the fact that our institutions allow uh, small groups to block action by large majorities. And that's probably the main feature of our problem right now. But having said that, the more the public understands and knows and appreciates the what to do, the more likely we are to achieve the what to do. So we're always in need to operate on broad public understanding in a democratic setting and on the nuts and bolts and, and the machinery of government. Uh, and that's why it's interesting right now, for example, that the Democrats who have the slightest of slightest majorities in the Senate, 50 to 50, plus the tiebreaker vote by the vice president, um, are using the mechanics of government, aiming to pass a reconciliation bill by a straight party line vote later this fall. So political action depends on broad public understanding, on the specifics of what to do, and on the machinery of politics and power, all three of those. Now, I uh, tend to work on uh, the middle one of those, the what to do. Uh, for example, uh, a consortium of uh, academics, uh, <laughs> excuse me, late last year and early this year put forward something we call ZCAP, the Zero Carbon Action Plan, which was a group of us getting together across the United States to write a pathway to get to net zero for the United States based on a rigorous energy model and then on the policies to achieve that. And the idea of that ZCAP exercise was to help inform decision-making in the U.S. government and in the states. And I think it is playing that constructive role. But we need also to focus on these other two elements, the broad public understanding and the mechanics of government. So when it comes to the broad public understanding, I think uh, I go back to uh, Plato and Aristotle's idea 
that uh, to have good government, we need a good citizenry. And that means a citizenry which is educated to the challenges that we face, educated both in technical terms and in ethical terms uh, about uh, pursuing the common good, uh, pursuing uh, the best interests of the society at large. We need more public understanding to be sure. We need to incorporate sustainable development not only into a college curriculum, but into a K through 12 curriculum. And indeed, uh, the UN has said, do it. And we're trying right now to come up with a, a good curriculum that can teach about hunger or poverty or inequality or climate change or loss of biodiversity at all levels as part of a good education for students and for the general public. Extremely, it's extremely important that we focus on that. Uh, then comes the machinery of government side. Well, right now we have a kind of machinery. We have to make it work properly, but we need a better machinery. Uh, and so we need political reform as well. That's why passing uh, legislation <coughs> like the voting reform legislation that passed the House and is being stopped by the Republicans in the Senate that would open up, make it easier for people to participate in the political process, make it easier for people to register to vote, make it people easier for people to vote, is so important if we want to improve the functioning of our institutions and take politics out of the hands of a, a narrow minority interest, vested interest, that are blocking so many of the changes that we need today. If I, if I may ask very quickly, so I'm curious, um, you mentioned Plato, of course, and Plato's Republic. If I'm remembering it correctly, he did believe in a small ruling elite. So I wonder how, how that sort of fits in into what you're saying. Like, it's highly, highly circular, right? Like, we can't just say we have to start here, we have to start here, because they all sort of feed into each other. How do you reconcile with this idea? Yeah. Yeah. So... I think the, 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 a basic point of the ancient Greeks was that <laughs> there is a kind of uh, uh, reflexivity, uh, you could call it, uh, between uh, the virtues of the citizenry and the virtues of government. Uh, if you want good government, you need virtuous citizens. If you want virtuous citizens, you need a virtuous government uh, that helps uh, train and educate. Of course, uh, Plato... Uh, was the first to write down a, a detailed set of ideas about that in the Republic. And then later in his life, he followed it up by the laws. It's notable, heartening for me in a peculiar way. I was in Syracuse, Sicily, which is an ancient Greek settlement. Recently, Plato came three times to try to advise Syracuse and he failed each time. So it reminded me of the difficulties of uh, being an advisor <coughs> to governments. If Plato failed so many times, uh, hey, what about the rest of us? But the fact is, uh, he asked the right questions. His uh, greatest student, Aristotle, uh, and uh, my favorite uh, philosopher, did not agree with many of the things Plato said in the Republic. Uh, but he did agree about a few things and uh, amplified them. In the politics, Aristotle said, first of all, government is for the common good of the public, for the eudaim eudaimonia, 
for the well-being of, of the population. Second, uh, he emphasized this interplay of virtuous citizens, virtuous government, because remember, the politics of Aristotle goes along with his other, another of his great books, uh, The Nicomachean Ethics, uh, as, a, as a pair, politics and ethics going together, if one can imagine, but that is the right idea for all of this. The third thing that Aristotle said was uh, mixed government uh, <coughs> is probably the best, a mixed set of institutions. Uh, not so, he had uh, an elaborate theory, of course, he was looking at how city-states could be ruled, uh, but he wanted uh, a broad middle class uh, for stability of society. He wanted to avoid extremes between rich and poor. He wanted a balanced set of institutions. Uh, so he wasn't for Plato's philosopher king uh, the same way, uh, but gave some very pragmatic ideas. What do we take of it today? <laughs> In my view, uh, the abiding points that are important in my view are first, politics should be about the well-being of society, not the struggle for power. So not the Machiavellian uh, view, but the Aristotelian idea. Second, uh, that actually requires uh, virtues in the citizenry uh, as well. And that requires public education, which was a major theme of both uh, Plato and Aristotle education. Now, uh, even for Aristotle, even more ambitiously, I would say. And I think that that is crucial. We're trying to make real democracy work. Uh, this is something that the Greeks did not have in the polis. They had democracy, they invented it. <coughs> and actually, Aristotle and Plato were rather skeptical uh, of uh, Athenian democracy in some ways. But uh, it was not the kind of inclusive democracy that we're aiming for. Our challenge is huge in a big, diverse country uh, and uh, aiming for universal uh, citizenship and participation, at least many of us are aiming for that. That requires a lot of education, uh, a lot of deliberation. We need uh, an agora like in, uh, in Athens, but uh, we need it for 330 million people. So we have to do it online in some ways. We need all sorts of innovations, but I think especially we need uh, a lot of education for what it means to be a good citizen in the 21st century. Yeah, again, like a, a couple of really great points about um, how we should kind of function as a little bit more of a cohesive society rather than as um, the unitary kind of libertarian um, this is this is my prerogative. This is my country. That that libertarian that libertarian idea would have been totally bizarre uh, <coughs> for Aristotle, uh, who said uh, we are zoan politikon. We are political animals, or it can be translated, we are social animals. Uh, we can't get along without others. He said any individual who would uh, live on their own would either be a god or a beast. Uh, and uh, this is uh, exactly uh, right, but this became libertarianism in a strange kind of way through uh, British uh, empiricist philosophy from Locke uh, onward. And I think we have to go back to some Aristotelian wisdom uh, as part of this. If you're still here, thank you for listening. 
we'd like to take this opportunity to share Professor Sachs' podcast, The Book Club. The Book Club features monthly interviews with renowned authors about their groundbreaking work in history, social justice, sustainable development, and more. You can find it at www.bookclubwithjeffreysachs.org. Additionally, you can find SDSN Youth USA on all social media platforms at the SDSN Youth USA.